almost forgot for a second I needed to come up here and preach. I think church has already happened. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. We're in week two of our Ten Commandments series. So as you might imagine, we're in the second commandment. As we, as we get ready, as you're turning there, I want to say something that we say fairly often here, and it's that sermons exist in an ecosystem. No sermon stands alone on its own. A sermon exists in the ecosystem of the scriptures um, and in the witness of the whole scripture. And the sermons exist in the ecosystem of what a church teaches as a whole. So I would highly encourage you, if you've missed a week or if you miss a week in our Ten Commandments series, that you go back and listen to it. Because especially these first two commandments, they really build a foundation that's going to create space that everything else in the Ten Commandments is going to build on. So last week we talked about covenant and how the commandments are like the vows of the covenant um, that was given, the vows of the marriage that's given documentation later on in the law. And we talked about how God says in this sacred space of covenant, nothing else can share this space. I am the one who you covenant to in the God space in your life and nothing else shares that space. So today, we are in the second commandment, and this is going to be kind of a weird sermon. Um, just for the record, as I was studying for this, um, I, I realized there are really just two big ideas, two things that I actually need to preach today in order not just to understand this commandment, but also for this commandment to live in our lives, to imagine what this is like in our world. There are two things. So this is a two-point sermon really more of like two mini-sermons, okay? So that might be kind of scary because you feel like we're, they're actually going to be huge sermons. This is going to last a long time. I promise I will do my best to make sure they're mini-sermons. Um, my very southern preacher father would call this a Texas Longhorn sermon. Two points with a lot of bull in the middle. Uh, yeah, I love that joke. Um, but let's jump in. We're going to start Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start reading in verse 4. It says this, You shall not make for yourself an image. In the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below, or in, the wa- or in the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Spirit is is already here with us, moving in our hearts, aligning us with your truth. Today we ask once again, as we regularly do, that the name of Jesus would be the name that matters, that things that are my thoughts or ideas would be revealed so that they can be rejected, that your spirit would be working in each of our hearts as we hear your word today, but that what is from you would be remembered, that it would echo in our minds and draw us deeper into your way and into your love. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, sermon number one. <laughs> uh, have, you ever, have you ever been in a room and you heard somebody on the other side of that room say your name? Like they're in a conversation, but you hear your name like it's, like, like it's the only thing loud and you're just like, just like zoned into that? I hate it when that happens because this might just be a me thing, but I have never heard that happen and thought, I bet they're saying wonderful things about me. 
I'm always like, they know. I don't know what they found out or what I got caught doing. I don't think I did anything to get caught doing, but they found out for sure, and I'm in trouble now. Like, they're over there saying, CJ's the worst, and here's the list of reasons why. Like, that's always what I imagine. Is anybody, is that just me? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> have you ever gotten a text that says, uh, hey, we need to talk later? The worst, right? I hate that. I always, I always tell people who aren't millennials, if you want to terrify a millennial, send a text that says, we need to talk, dot, dot, dot. You will ruin their week. I mean, it is just, it is awful. I got a message in a group chat uh, about a week and a half ago, um, and I didn't understand the message. So I called the guy who sent it, and I said, hey, I think I missed something. You explained this to me. And he said, actually, I'll just talk about it. Well, I'll talk to you on pri in private on Monday. And I, I said, okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, and then I hung up the phone and I thought, Monday? Like, what am I going to do until then? Just eat my feelings and not sleep? This is the worst, right? Turns out it was nothing to worry about at all, but I worried. <laughs> I mean, I worried. Have you, ever, um, have you ever been in like a performance review meeting at work or had a, like a conversation with someone where you have to talk about some stuff and they might say five to seven good things? And they give you one thing that's like, here's where we think you need some improvement. And you, and you could have gotten a bonus out of that meeting, but you still leave feeling like you're going to get fired. Right? Like, the worst. I hate, like, we, we have such a tendency. I don't know if this is a human thing or if this is just the result of our modern, hyper-connected, we-know-everything-all-the-time world. But we have such a tendency to focus on the negative don't we? We have such a tendency to assume the negative. We can be in a whole meeting with all kinds of positive things, but the one thing that's in bold print and blinking in our mind is the one negative thing that was said. We, we talk about this a lot at The Fold, and it's worth saying again, and, and I'm not the first person to say this, and I hope I won't be the last person to say this, but it's also worth noting that, that we live in a world where news and media and the things that we see all the time are primarily negative. And that's not because everything happening in the world is negative. It's because people that work for media work for profit, so they make money when we click and when we watch. And we watch and click things that are negative. We have a strong tendency to do that, so we perpetuate the cycle. The negative is what we remember. The negative is what catches our attention. And did you know that this tendency shapes the way that we read Scripture? You know, it's interesting, if you read the prophets of the Old Testament, there is so much mercy, and there is so much beauty, and so many analogies, and so much mystery, and there's some wrath. But oftentimes when people talk about the prophets, they talk about wrath. Because it's the thing that stands out to us in our culture. You know, when we read the Old Testament, sometimes we get stuck on the violence, and I'm not trying to give you an easy, oversimplified answer to violence in the Bible. That's a complicated thing that we need to wrestle with. But it's funny how often the violence will stand out to us as if it encompasses the story when there's so much more going on. So we have this tendency to focus on the negative. And if I were a betting person, which I'm not, um, <laughs> just because I would lose, <laughs> um, I would say that when we read this commandment, that most of us, the thing that stood out in bold was punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Yikes. I mean, that sounds negative. 
that's hard to even like comprehend because we don't think generationally in our world. Most of us don't really know what our great-grandparents were living like, which just for the record, third and fourth generation is like the living memory of something. You know, you might know a little bit about your great-grandparents. You might have met them, but generations beyond that, you don't really know. So it's talking about punishment lasting in living memory in there. Um, but we hear that, and we hear negative. We focus on the negative. We think, how could God do this? It's the thing that jumps out to us in bold. Did you know that your experience will shape your perception of God's character? Your experience in life will shape how you perceive God's character. Because it'll shape how you read scripture. There are a lot of us, I think, that we, maybe we grew up in a home where every conversation was a serious conversation. So it seemed like it, if, you, if you were going to get attention, it had to, be a seri- I mean, it had to be serious. The voice was always stern. We have such a hard time imagining that God would speak to us in a gentle voice. Because we, when we imagine authority figures, we imagine that we're always in trouble. It's interesting. And, and this is the first point. This is the summation of the first mini-sermon. What you perceive about God's character, you will perpetuate into the world. What you perceive about God's character, you will perpetuate. It is really, really hard to speak gently to those that you love if you imagine that the one who loves you most never speaks gently to you. Some of us grew up in maybe a very performative culture. And, and, and listen, it's not, it's not blaming or indicting our parents or our culture to, to do this. Everyone is shaped in specific ways. You know, my, my son will learn negative things from me that the character of God won't be reflected in the character of God and he will have to allow those lies to dissipate. We're not indicting anyone. We're just being honest. We might have grown up in a home. We might have grown up in an environment. We might have just grown up in a school where only the, peop- the people who got noticed were the people who were doing well. So we feel like if we're going to go to the Lord and ask for something, things have to be going well. We can't go to the Lord with troubles or with our mistakes. If we have sinned, we have to get that right before we go to the Lord because we've learned that in the world, the people who get attention are the people who are succeeding. So that's what we imagine. And then we perpetuate that on the world around us. And we say, the people who get attention are the people who are trying. (laughs) They're putting in the effort. They deserve the recognition. And we perpetuate those same cycles. Our experience in life shapes how we understand God's character. Maybe you grew up in a home, or maybe you've just developed somehow on your own, because sometimes we just seem to, by osmosis, absorb these things from culture. This sort of carrot and stick mentality, where it's like things always have to be hard. Things always have to be harder. So every, every, time, every time you get something accomplished, there's more that you've got to do right there. As if the goal in life is hanging right in front of your nose, and every time you get closer, it gets farther away. And then we imagine that that's what God is doing, that every time we deal with a lie in our hearts, God reveals us to us five more that we've got to deal with. 
every time we find some sort of victory in an area of sin, God reveals to us five more. Every time we spend 10 minutes in prayer, we feel like God asks for an hour now. The the goal is always in front of our nose and we're chasing it down, but we're never really getting any closer. And that's how we imagine that the world works because maybe that's been our experience or maybe we just somehow projected that. Maybe we didn't experience it because sometimes that happens. Sometimes I have found that I tell myself lies because it's easier for me to evaluate my own performance. And then we perpetuate that on the people around us, in our homes, with our kids, in our work environment. You've got to try harder. Things aren't supposed to be easy. The goal's right in front of you. Keep going. Which, just for the record, if there's someone in your life that is always severe, <laughs> they always speak with a stern voice, that's hard to handle, but it's probably because that's how they speak to themself, themselves. It's probably because that's how they imagine God speaking to them. It's probably a wound that's being perpetuated. That's why God says, do not make for yourself an image. Because we make images based on our perceptions. Our perceptions are shaped by our experiences. And we perpetuate what we perceive about God. So if we start crafting images of what God is like, then those images will be based on our understanding and our experience. And we will perpetuate into the world what we understand about God, what we want God to be like, what we've experienced in our family or in the church we grew up in. And and we will never come under the alignment of Scripture to say this is what God is actually like. We will only say this is what I think God is like. That's why this phrase about punishment is so important. Because it stands out to us as surprising. But my guess is that in the ancient world, punishment wasn't surprising. It was a violent world in a violent culture. It's actually unique in human history that for most of us, violence is not part of our lives. For much of human history, the world has been a violent place. That's a good thing. I'm pretty happy about that, by the way. That we are not violent, not that the world has been violent. That's bad. Violence is not good. I'm glad we don't. I'm glad I'm not like fighting bears for food every day or something. Um, Punishment would have been normal. It would have been normal to assume that a god that you worship would, would hold on to bitterness. That God would remember your sins. And we, we could do a deep dive into the idea of punishment in Scripture, and we could talk about the way the word is used, and we can talk about the, the difference between punishment and consequence and how that looks in the cross. We could do that, but that would actually, I think, be missing the point of the commandment. Because the point here was not God to talk about punishment. He was differentiating himself. Because he was saying, other gods, you people, remember bitternesses. You will remember feuds for generations. But while I might punish for a moment, I will show mercy for a millennia. Do you see that he says, I punish for the third and fourth generation for the living memory, but I show mercy into perpetuity. I show mercy for a thousand generations. My mercy eclipses my judgment. My mercy eclipses my punishment. My mercy is the defined. He was asking the people to come under the concept of his character rather than building images based on their assumptions. 
And listen, perpetuating mercy in the world will, ne will never make the world worse, for the record. Perpetuating the gentle, kind, loving mercy of God in the way we speak and in the way we act and in the way we talk to ourselves and to one another will never lead to destruction. You know, we oftentimes get afraid of grace as if grace is something that we could get too much of and it could get out of control. But Jesus says, I punish for three or four, I show mercy for a thousand. That's the character of God. That's why we don't make images. Because our images will never live up to his character. They'll never live up to his character. I just want to ask you a question at the end of the first sermon. <laughs> Do you talk to yourself in line with the character of God? The voice in your mind that you say to you, does it match God's character? Because I'll just be honest, I say things to myself that I would never tolerate being said to another human being. I talk about myself in such a way that if somebody said that to my son, I'd throw hands. That's a new phrase that I've developed. I just like just using it all the time now. I know it's like five years old now. I don't care. Do you talk to yourself the way God would talk to his daughter or son? Or are you perpetuating an image of God that you have made based on your experiences? The way you talk to yourself is probably the way you will talk to other people, maybe in less a form for the record but it is the way we'll talk to other people. It'll always come out. We perpetuate what we perceive about God's character. And the way we perceive God's character is informed by our experience. It is a hard thing to do to allow our experiences to be formed by God's character. It's a hard, long thing to do. For the record, that's why Jesus spent three years with his disciples. And for two and like nine-tenths of those years, they didn't understand what was going on. It's a long journey to begin to undo those lies and figure out. That's why discipleship is a journey. That's why you can't take a class and be discipled at the end of it. You learn to engage in the lifelong journey of discipleship, which ultimately is really the lifelong journey of saying, that's not who God actually was. This is. I now align myself with that. Sermon number two. Jealousy is a weird word, isn't it? It's weird for God to use the word jealous because jealous seems petty, doesn't it? When we think of jealousy, we think of like my eighth grade girlfriend laughed too hard at my best friend's joke. That's stupid. She's the worst. Like that's how we, th we think of jealousy like soap operas, right? We, th we think of jealousy as this thing that is rooted in insecurity, in self-absorption in some way. Why are you being jealous? Come on, don't you trust them? Why are you being jealous? Why, do you, why are you so controlling? Why are you so manipulative? There is certainly an expression of jealousy that's unhealthy. But did you know that jealousy actually has a very appropriate place in a relationship? If there is a covenant relationship like marriage and family, then jealousy is a very appropriate response when things are being done outside of that covenant that are meant to be done inside that covenant. 
Like if, if my wife came to maybe one of the women in the church or somebody in the church and said, hey, listen, CJ is acting really weird. He's secretive. He's been out late a lot. And, and like he won't give me any of the passwords to stuff on his device. He seems to have these like secret conversations going on. I feel really uncomfortable. Please don't say, oh, just, you're just being jealous. Come on. No, get mad and get jealous on her behalf and then come get in my face about it. Because that is an appropriate response, right? If I am keeping secrets that are diverting energy outside of the covenant relationship with my wife, then she should be jealous of that because I'm giving something away that's hers. And that doesn't have to be an affair. That can just be time and attention. It's called an emotional affair. If, if I am giving 110% at work so that when I come home, Jen and Josiah only get 50%, they should be jealous of my job. They ought to be jealous of it. That's the right response because I am giving something away to some other place that they're supposed to have. It shouldn't be my time and attention and energy with them that get sacrificed. Jealousies, you know, it, it is sad and I've had to repent of this. Oh, when I... I'm supposed to be at home playing with Josie or connecting with Jen, and instead I'm scrolling through my phone trying to numb out. My son should be jealous of my phone. Jen should be jealous of the time and energy and attention that is going to a device, not her. Because something that's meant for that covenant is being given outside of that covenant, and it doesn't have to be pornography to justify jealousy. God says, I am jealous when something is given outside of this covenant that is meant to be inside this covenant. Because just so you know, if, if, I am, if I am diverting energy away from my marriage, that reflects unhealth in me. It's destructive to me. It's destructive to my family. Right? Jen isn't just jealous for her, herself. She's also jealous for me because it would reflect negative. It would reflect danger. It would reflect harm in my own heart and life. Right? So God is jealous He's jealous. And, and the reason, this goes all the way back to the created order. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity. And he creates humanity and he gives humanity something called dominion is the way it's often translated into English. Sometimes it's translated stewardship or authority. Some people think it's an agricultural word that means to build up or to trample down. But what we know for sure is that humanity is different from the created order because we do not exist solely within the created order. We actually have the ability to affect things. Anybody who's ever looked at a city can tell birds don't build cities. We have the ability to affect things. Anthropologists say that one of the differences between human beings and animals is that we are meaning-making creatures. In other words, my dog does not get food and then assign me to be a god and give him value. My dog is just like, food! He's just excited about it. Dogs don't assign meaning or value to things. Human beings do. We assign meaning. My dog has never had an existential crisis. I have. Human beings are meaning-making creatures. But we were created to get meaning from our creator and then to do work in the world because we mean something. To do work in the world based on our meaning. So the work we do matters because we mean something. We do not work to gain meaning. We work because of meaning. But what happens when a human being makes an image of God that is of the sun or of an animal or of the ocean or of a cloud? Something we were supposed to have dominion under, we now come under the dominion of. 
It breaks the created order. We are now under something we were made to have authority over. We are now, we are now finding meaning in something that we have made instead of making something because of the meaning we were given. And it's destructive. Now, most of us don't, like, make idols. Most of us in, in the Western world, we don't necessarily have an idol in our house. A lot of scholars have pointed to the common idols in the ancient world, the common gods, and they say it was generally sex, money, and power, and violence. And they say those same things are still perpetuated in the world around us. When people seek to find meaning, they try to get powerful to feel meaningful. They try to find pleasure to feel meaningful. They try to accrue resources to find meaning in the world. They do the same things. In general, we just go to our job and we say, this is what I was meant to do. Or we look at our family and we say, you give me meaning and you give me purpose. Something in creation gives me meaning instead of me co-creating out of meaning. And it breaks down the created order. It robs me of my meaning. It subjects someone else. It robs them of their place in creation. So God says, do not make an image because everything was created in the opposite direction. There's something else about having an image, making an idol, whether it's work, whether it's my relationships, my family, whether it's something else, is that it allows me to say, this is what matters, so this doesn't matter. If work is where I find meaning, then I can have relationships that are kind of meaningless. They're just fun. If, if my marriage is the only thing that gives me meaning, then my work doesn't have to matter. Because if there's an idol, if there's an image, then it allows me to say all of my worship is connected to this image, and if it's not connected to this image, it's not worship. But there's something else in the created order that we cannot, we can't understand this commandment if we don't see this, is in Genesis, I believe, 126. Right before God says, I gave them dominion, he says, so let us make humanity in our image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them equal bearers of the image of God. Both fully the image of God in equal measure. In the image of God, he made them male and female, he made them. In other words, we don't need an idol because we are the image. We don't need an idol because we are the image of God. How ridiculous would it be for the people of God chosen by him to, to erect something to find meaning in when they have been created as his image bearer in the world? But there's something else. Because, because anything, any image of something else, you do not worship the image, you worship the thing that it points to, right? So we do not worship one another. We rather worship God through one another. But you know what that tells us? It tells us that the way we relate with other human beings is inextricable from our worship. Because every human being you have ever interacted with is a bearer of the image of God. Every human being you have ever interacted with bears his image, is made in his image. You cannot interact with a human being without it being an act of worship in some way. 
without it being connected to worship because that person is the image. That person is the image of God. When you look in the mirror, the things that you say to yourself are an act of worship. So if you wouldn't say them to the image of God, don't say them to yourself. Because that is a holy place. The image of God is there. this, This should give us joy. It should show us the sacred nature of a marriage, of a family, of the work that we do in the world. It should also give us a lot of fear and trembling because why would I parent my kids in such a way that I would not parent the image of God? If I'm going to discipline my child, and the Bible says we should, for the record, I do it knowing that's the image of God. If I'm going to speak to my spouse... I have to be very careful because that's the image of God. And if I'm going to argue with my spouse, I would never say anything to her I wouldn't say to God because she's the image of God. Every human interaction I have is reflective of the image of God. It's an act of worship. Do you see why this commandment is foundational to the rest of them? Because why don't you kill? You're killing the image of God. Why don't you steal? Because that person is made in the image of God. They are sacred. Why don't you commit adultery? Because that is God's image. It's the reflection of his covenant that you would be betraying. It's part of worship. This commandment informs the entire ethic because it means every time we interact with another human being, we are actually worshiping. Yes, we sing. Yes, we pray. Yes, we confess. And all of those things are 100% inextricably tied to the way that we interact with other human beings. They are all part of worship. The way we treat one another is part of the image of God. We talked earlier, uh, like in, during worship, about a revival that is breaking out in, in Asbury, Kentucky right now. Praise the Lord for that. It is a beautiful thing. And if it never changes the way Christians interact with other human beings, it's not revival. Because it's not full worship. Because it has to come out in the way we treat one another. Because every person that you interact with is an image bearer. Your spouse is an image bearer. Your kids is an, is an image bearer. Your boss is an image bearer. If you can't stand your boss, the way you talk to them still matters. The way you talk about them behind their back still matters. Because that person, even if you don't like them, is made in the image of God. Can you imagine talking about God the way we talk about coworkers we don't like? <laughs> yeah sacred it's an act of worship but because this seems heavy it almost seems like how in the world can I interact in a safe way how do I interact in a safe way how do I interact in a way that's worship I remember that it is mercy that is the character of God God is called like many things in scripture he is called directly two things love and light he is like and he does lots of things. He is love and light. Those are the two things in scripture that he is defined as. His character is loving. So what that means is love is the bar. It's the measure for how we interact with one another. And also love is the measure for how we interact with God when we fail. Because we are loved. Because his punishment is for, will be forgotten. His mercy lasts forever. That's his character. That forms the whole Ten Commandments. It's about his mercy. What we understand, what we perceive about God's character, we perpetuate into the world. God's character is love and mercy. And we do not need an idol because we are the image. 
So the way that we perpetuate that love and mercy that is God's character in the world is by interacting with love and mercy in our homes, to our kids, to our spouses, in our workplace, to our neighbors. This is how we tell the world who God is because we as his image act in love and in mercy. And when we fall short, which we inevitably do, we remember that his character is love and mercy. So we repent and try again because his mercy lasts forever. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that your character is mercy and your character is love. We thank you that you have made us as your image bearers. We ask that we would be able to see ourselves as the bearers of your image. We ask that we would be able to see the way, the way that we parent, our marriages, our, our work as worship because it's all interacting with your image in the world that we would see the sacred beauty and joy of every moment because the world is, is littered with your image. It's everywhere. And your beauty and your goodness. May we be people who multiply your true character into the world around us because we are continually coming into alignment with who you actually are. God, as we worship, reveal the lies that we believe about ourselves and about you so that we can be more aligned with the fact, the truth, that you are actually merciful and loving. And let us, in turn, be your merciful, loving image in the world. We love you. Amen.